Thank you. It is good and pleasant when God's people live together in unity. Does the Lord's Supper have anything to do with the subject of unity? It does. It it really does. And this morning, as we continue to prepare for coming to the table, I'd like to show you the connection between the Lord's Table, the Lord's Supper, the communion service, and unity. Let's pray first. Our Father, we thank you for the time to sing and remember the sacrifice of Jesus, to remember that you love the world so much that you were willing to send your one and only Son to give his life, to pay our sin penalty, that we might be able to experience forgiveness, eternal life with you. Father, I pray that you would continue to prepare us to remember that, to give thanks for that at your table as we look at these scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. We are right in the middle of a series called One, where we're talking about the unity that we have as God's people. And in this series, I'm presenting two aspects of this unity. There is what's called the positional unity and what's called relational unity. Now, just to review, positional unity is the unity that God has created for his people. We don't create it. God has created it. That positional unity comes through our common salvation. Our common salvation. In that common salvation, we have been placed into the one same kingdom of God. All who have experienced God's salvation are in that one same kingdom of God. He has placed us in the one same family. We are the children of God through salvation. And we are all in the one family of God. He has placed us in the one same body of Christ, over which Christ is the head. Through our common salvation, God has placed us in that one body of Christ. Through our salvation, he's placed us in the one church, the one universal church, over which Christ is the head. Through our common salvation, God has given us one common hope, the hope of eternal life and the hope of spending eternity in the one same place in his presence. That's our positional unity. God has united us through that common salvation. There's also the relational unity, and that's what we're focusing on in this series. Relational unity is the living out of that unity with each other. 
in the body of Christ, in the kingdom of God, in the family of God, in the church. As we relate to each other as fellow Christians who are united by God. It's relational unity. It's how we speak to each other. It's how we treat each other. It's how we live together. Our theme verse from Psalm 133.1. It's good and pleasant when God's people live together. That's relational in unity. And so we're talking about the relational unity. Today, I want to introduce you to two churches. Two churches mentioned in Scripture. One of these churches needed to learn about positional unity. It was very important for them to learn this, this whole concept of positional unity. And then we're going to look at a church that violated relational unity. So a church that needed to learn and did learn about positional unity and a church that violated relational unity. So start with me in the book of Ephesians. If you have your Bible, turn there. The New Testament book of Ephesians, the second chapter. Ephesians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesian church in the city of Ephesus. We see in chapter 1, Paul the Apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus. So that's who he's writing to, uh, the Christians in the city of Ephesus. In the first 10 verses of chapter 2, he has been reminding these Christians who are mostly Gentile, it's a Gentile city, not Jewish city. Most of the people in this church are Gentiles, not Jewish. But he has reminded them in the first part of chapter 2 of what their condition was before salvation. They were dead in their sins. And he gives other descriptions of their condition before salvation. Then we come to verse 11. He has reminded them of their condition before salvation, reminded them of how they by grace through faith had come to salvation. And then we come to verse 11. Before I read this, I want you to mark, if you mark in your Bible, I'd like you to mark three things so that it will be a visual reminder to you as you come back to this text. In verse 12, it says, remember that at that time you were, if you could underline, you were. Verse 13, he begins, but now. If you could underline, but now. And then verse 19, consequently, you are. If you could underline the words, you are. We're going to look at this passage very quickly in three pieces. We're going to start with the you were, move to the but now, and conclude with you are. So, first of all, verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, 
excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Paul reminds the Ephesian Christians what they were before salvation. And there's a whole list of things that were true of them at that time. Uh, Notice, they were separate from Christ. That's not a good thing. But that was their situation before salvation. They were separate from Christ. No relationship, no fellowship with Christ Jesus. He goes on, you were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You, you weren't Jewish people. You weren't part of Israel. You were Gentiles, separate from that. He goes on, you were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. God had chosen Israel as this nation, had given them covenants and promises. Paul says to the Ephesians, you weren't part of that. You weren't given those promises. Those covenants weren't made to you as Gentiles. He goes on. He says, you were without hope. That was your condition. That's a terrible condition to be in, without hope. And he says, you were without God in this world, without God. You were those things. Then he moves to verse 13 through 18. But now, what was true of them at the time Paul is writing. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Paul is talking about two groups here. It's obviously Gentiles, Jews. He's speaking to these Gentiles in Ephesus. And he's already reminded them, you were these things, separate from Christ, without God, without hope, not part of the promises and the covenants that God made with the the Jewish people. But now, he says, in Jesus, notice some of the things that became true through their salvation. He says, You who were far away have been brought near. Verse 14. He has made the two one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. What was the barrier, the dividing wall? It was a a racial one. There were Gentiles and Jews. There was a big wall between them. There was hostility between Jews and Gentiles. It was a barrier. What Paul is saying to the Ephesians, because of salvation, through Jesus, that wall has been broken down. That barrier has been torn down. Jesus has made out of the two, Jews and Gentiles, one. He's brought you together through salvation. He says his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, making peace. The wall, the barrier is down. 
through salvation, there's peace between the two groups. Verse 16, in this one body, he reconciled both of them to God through the cross, put to death the hostility. The hostility has been dealt with on the cross. And then it says in verse 18, through him, we both have access. Who's the both? Jews and Gentiles. Christian Jews, Christian Gentiles. We both have access to the Father by the one Spirit. We don't appreciate this difference. We don't appreciate this this unity, this positional unity that Paul is talking about. Because we don't appreciate what that wall was like, what that barrier was like between the Jewish people and the Gentiles. And if you want to just do some reading and you want to check it out, you'll read how serious that wall was, how extreme the hostility was between Gentiles and Jewish people. And yet Paul says that wall has been taken down through Jesus. And notice all the references through his cross, through the blood of Christ, through him. Jesus, this has happened. The wall has been taken down. And you are now one. Whether you're a Gentile or a Jew, through your salvation, your common salvation, you are now one. Same body. Same family of God. He he goes on. He says, consequently, verse 19 You are no longer foreigners and aliens, but your fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, his family. And this household is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built And here's the word, together, to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This whole passage presents Paul helping these Gentile Christians in Ephesus learn about positional unity. That even though they used to be separate and there was this wall and hostility between them and the Jewish people, Paul is saying, now that you've come to salvation by grace through faith, The wall is down through the blood of Jesus, through the cross of Jesus. The wall is down and you are now one in Christ. What an amazing thing at that time for the Ephesian Christians to hear. We don't appreciate what it would have been like to hear that. But Paul wants to make sure they learn this and understand it that they are now one in Christ with even Jewish Christians. And it's through the blood of Jesus, it's through the cross of Jesus that made that possible. The Ephesians needed to learn that. We need to learn that. Have you learned that? Have you learned and understood this positional unity that you, if you're a Christian, have with all other Christians, no matter what the differences might be? 
Are there walls today that could be applied to this? You know, back then it was the Gentile Jewish wall barrier that had been torn down through the death of Christ and his salvation. There was also the male-female barrier and wall. Paul talks about that in Galatians, that there was a wall between male and female that was torn down. And male and female were one in Christ. There was a wall between slaves and masters in that day. Slaves and free. And yet through the common salvation, they were made one. There are walls today that have been broken down by Jesus' death and his salvation. There are still racial walls. But in Christ, it doesn't matter what race you're a part of. You're one through the common salvation purchased by Jesus. There are social walls, rich, poor, different status, broken down. In Christ, we're all one. There can be walls today that involve labor and management, right? In Christ, they're broken down. We're one in the family of God. There can be walls today that are political, obviously. But in Christ, those are broken down. We are one as God's people through salvation. There can even be walls that have to do with age, between the young and the old, and barriers and even hostility. Broken down through salvation. Common salvation unites us, young and old. There can be cultural wars, you know, urban, rural, city, country. There can be thick walls, but through Christ and our common salvation made one. The walls broken down. Background. The lives we used to live before we were Christians. For some, it was the wildest, most sinful, wicked life you could think of. For others, they grew up in a church and they've known Jesus since they were kids. And sometimes walls develop between those people because their backgrounds were so different. But through the death of Christ and his common salvation, we are one. It doesn't matter where we came from. It doesn't matter what we were like before salvation. We are now one in Christ. That's positional unity. And Paul wants the Ephesians to learn that and understand it. That they are one with all other believers through that common salvation. And when we come to the Lord's Supper, one of the things that's happening is that we are celebrating that positional unity. When we come up to these tables and we eat the bread and and we drink from the cup, we are remembering the positional unity that was made possible through the death of Christ. It was through his blood. It was through his cross that he tore down those dividing walls, those barriers. And all who experience that common salvation become one in Christ. 
all in the one same body, all in the one same kingdom, all in the one same family, all in the one same church of Jesus Christ because of his sacrifice on Calvary. And so there is a connection between unity and the Lord's Supper. We celebrate and remember what Jesus did to create that positional unity, that oneness that all Christians have, no matter how different they have been or are. There is a unity through the death of Jesus Christ and his salvation. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I want to introduce you to a church that was experiencing this positional unity. They were believers. This was a church in the city of Corinth. In chapter 1, Paul starts saying it's him writing. And in verse 2, he says, it's to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. These are Christians in the church at Corinth, and he's writing to them. They are experiencing positional unity. They have come to salvation. They're in that one same body, family, kingdom of God. But they have not been practicing relational unity. They have been practicing disunity in their relationships. In chapter 1, right away, Paul talks about how he's heard there are divisions in the church. There's quarreling going on in the church. They're not getting along. And he says it has to do with teachers, leaders. People have picked their favorite teacher. Does that ever happen? They pick their favorite teacher. And so some are saying, I follow Paul. I choose Paul. He's the man. Others said, we choose Peter. He's better than Paul. We follow Paul. Others said, no, we're, we're with Apollos. He's the best speaker we've ever heard. We follow Apollos. And then there were the spiritual ones who said, we follow Christ. But they were in the quarreling as well and the division. This church had divided four ways. In their quarreling over which teacher to follow. There was division. And in chapter 3, Paul's pretty upset about it. And he says, in your divisions and in your quarreling over these teachers, you are being immature and you're acting like non-Christians. That's what he says about this division. They were a divided church. We get to chapter 6. We find out they also had disputes among themselves, and they were actually taking each other, Christians taking Christians to court. There were lawsuits between Christians in that Corinthian church. And Paul's upset about that. He says, what are you doing taking your disputes as Christians to the courts of the world? And then you come to chapters 12 to 14, and we find out they were divided over spiritual gifts. They were being very unloving toward each other concerning the spiritual gifts, which are great things for ministry. But they were deciding certain gifts were better than others, and so those who had certain gifts felt they were superior, and they didn't need those other people in the church. 
And then there were the people in the church who had these gifts, but they weren't these great gifts, so they felt like they didn't belong. And there was this attitude of superiority on one side and this attitude of inferiority. And right in the middle of 12 to 14 is 13, and Paul talks about love because they were being unloving in their whole handling of the spiritual gifts. This church was a mess. They were practicing disunity. There wasn't any relational unity going on here. It was a divided church. And here's the sad thing. The Corinthians were bringing their divisions, their practice of disunity, to the Lord's Supper. Chapter 11. Chapter 11. Starting in verse 17. He says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. I have nothing to praise you about in what I'm about to say. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. Probably referring to these divisions that I just mentioned. And he says, to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Sometimes the divisions reveal things about people. Sometimes God lets division happen to reveal things. I think that's what he's saying. Verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. When you people come together, he says, it's not the Lord's Supper. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry. Another gets drunk. How could that happen? Well, we read about how back in the early church, the believers would gather for what they often called a love feast, kind of like a potluck, I guess. But they would gather together and and share a meal together. And then following the meal, they would observe the Lord's Supper. But what was happening in the Corinthian church is they were coming together and they were eating and drinking and almost partying. Some were being left out. Some were going hungry. Some weren't sharing their casserole with others. It had become like a high school lunchroom. Do you remember the high school lunchroom? You got this click over here and this click over here and nobody's going to share their food with anybody else. And this group over here as they're eating, they're talking about that group over there. You've been in a high school lunchroom, right? And it sounds almost like the Corinthian church when they came together for their love feast and then to celebrate the Lord's Supper, it was beginning to look like that. They brought these divisions over which teacher to follow, the disputes that were leading to lawsuits and the superior and inferior attitudes that were cropping up 
in dealing with the spiritual. They were bringing them to the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, it's not the Lord's Supper. It has ceased to be the Lord's Supper when you come together. Because you brought your divisions. And even there when you come together, for what is to be a celebration of your positional unity in Christ, you've turned it into a continuation of your practice of disunity. He's not very happy. Verse 22, he says, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. Then he moves into what we hear commonly when we share communion together. He reminds them of what the Lord's Supper is supposed to be. He reminds them of what Jesus himself said in the upper room before his death about this. And so in verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what it's all about. Paul reminds these people, that's what it's about. That's what Jesus said it's about. It's a time to remember the sacrifice of his body, the spilling of his blood for your salvation. That's what the Lord's Supper is about. But he said, when you guys come together, it's not the Lord's Supper. It's everyone for himself. You continue to practice disunity. Even when you come together for your so-called love feast and to observe the Lord's Supper. And then he wraps up this piece. And he says in verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, and we'll come back to that phrase, anyone who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That sounds serious, doesn't it? Verse 28, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. It's serious. Examine yourself before you participate. Verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Judgment. That's serious. If you eat and drink without recognizing the body of the Lord. Let me suggest something. He's referring to the body of the Lord as the church. Anyone who eats and drinks without honoring the body 
is in danger of judgment. Verse 30. That's why so many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. You've died. Oh, that's serious. Verse 31. But if we judge ourselves, examine ourselves, we will not come under a judgment. When we're judged by the Lord, we're being disciplined so that we won't be condemned with the world. It's serious. Examine yourself. Judge yourself before you come to the Lord's table. Make sure you're not dishonoring the body of the Lord. Make sure you're not dishonoring what this is all about, the death of Jesus. To not only provide salvation, but unity. So then, my brothers, he wraps it up, sums it up. Verse 33. When you come together to eat, wait for each other. And I think that means a lot more than just stand there and wait till they get there. It has to do with relationships. It has to do with togetherness. It has to do with practicing unity. When you come together, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. Paul is clearly saying the Lord's Supper is a serious thing. Now back to that phrase earlier where after reminding uh, the Corinthians of what Jesus' intention was for this Lord's Supper, he says, you know, examine yourselves. Judge yourself before you come because you don't want to partake in an unworthy manner. Now, what has happened over the decades, centuries, whatever, with this passage is that we have tended to take that phrase, eating and drinking in an unworthy manner, to refer to not wanting to come to the Lord's table if there's any kind of sin in your life. If, if something isn't right between you and God. You've heard it presented that right way, right? You know, that you don't want to come to the table in an unworthy manner. And that's interpreted as any sin in your life, anything between you and God that's not right. Examine yourself, judge yourself, deal with it. Before you come to the Lord's table. Because if you don't, you're eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. I want to suggest to you this morning that you think about this. All of that has a lot of credibility and is legitimate. It doesn't seem appropriate to come to the Lord's table knowing what it's about. Celebrating and remembering our forgiveness through Jesus' death. And yet we come to the table with sin in our lives that we're not dealing with, you know, something between us and Jesus that's not right. I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? Let me suggest this. That's not what Paul is talking about in this passage. I think the unworthy manner of eating and drinking is very specific in this passage. Why do I say that? Because from verse 17 to 22, where 
he begins to remind them of what the Lord's Supper is meant to be, what he's talking about is what? Their divisions. And how they're bringing their divisions, their disunity, their conflicts to the Lord's Supper. That's his subject, right? That's what he's specifically talking about. Then he reminds them of what it's all about. And then when he starts up again and moves toward his conclusion, what's he basically talking about? He wraps it up by talking again about how they're treating each other. And when you come together, you should wait for each other. Don't dishonor the body of Christ. He comes back to the specific subject, which is divisions, bringing your divisions and your conflicts and your quarrels and all that practice of disunity to the Lord's table. That's, that's the context. That's the subject. I suggest Paul is saying specifically that coming to the table and eating the bread and drinking the cup in the context of disunity is the unworthy manner. Because the Lord's Supper is about celebrating unity through our common salvation. Celebrating what Jesus has done in breaking down the walls and all the barriers that would keep us apart. Remembering and thanking Jesus for what he did to break those walls down and make us one. The Lord's Supper and unity go hand in hand. It's a celebration of our unity in Christ. And the Corinthians... We're messing it up. Paul says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper. It's not the way the Lord intended it to be. How can you call it the Lord's Supper? When you're acting like kids in a lunchroom, with your cliques and your quarrels and your divisions and your arguments and all that stuff. This is about unity, (laughs) celebrating positional unity. And the best way to come is in the context of practicing relational unity. So, this morning we're going to come to the table. And we're going to do exactly what Paul said. Before we do, we're going to examine ourselves. So he said, right? Examine yourself before you come and eat and drink. Judge yourself. Examine yourself. And in the context of this passage, it's in one area. It's in one area. How are you doing in relational unity? Do you have something against a brother. Are there quarrels between you and a brother or sister? Is there bitterness in your heart toward another believer? Is there this vengeful spirit in you? Someone in the body of Christ, here or somewhere else, has hurt you and wronged you, and you have this vengeful 
spirit toward that person? Is there a dispute between you and another believer that has turned into saying things about each other and treating each other in ways that are just not according to what God desires? Is there unforgiveness in your heart? This willingness that you're just holding on to to not forgive somebody. We could go on and on, right? Paul says, examine yourself. And he's saying it in the context of relational unity. So what I would like to do is have us pause for prayer before I pray for the cup and the bread and we come to the table. And I'm going to ask you in in some moments of silence to do exactly what Paul says in the context in which he says it. Your practice of unity. Your practice of relational unity. And if there's anything going on between you and another believer, whatever form it's taking, that isn't right, address that before God. Get your heart right relationally so you can come to the table and celebrate unity. And then along with getting your heart right relationally, I encourage you to make a commitment to God that sooner than later, you're going to go beyond getting your heart right. But you're going to make things right with that person so that you can practice relational unity with that person whatever that looks like. One of the things that I've seen, and and I'm sorry I'm being so tough, but boy, Paul was tough, right, in that passage. It was serious. What I've seen over over the years at communion services is that people who broaden the unworthy manner, um, they hardly ever come to the table. Because they take it seriously. And so they decide, you know, there's sin in my life. There are things going on in my life. Things aren't great with Jesus. So I, I'm going to be honest and I'm going to be humble and I'm not going to come. And as a result, they never come to the table. You know why? They're being honest. They're being humble about their sin. So they don't come to the table. But then they leave and never do anything about the sin or what's come between them and Jesus. My challenge to you is, as you prepare your heart, and before God, you make things right in your heart concerning something with another believer, that you commit to him that you'll take the next step and make it right with them. I'm not asking you I'm not asking you to be this honest Christian, this humble Christian and decide after examination that things aren't right between me and another believer. I've got attitudes toward them that aren't right. I would be eating and drinking in an unworthy manner and then because of that you do the honest thing, you decide not to come. 
And then you go home and do nothing about it. Do you know what I'm saying? You know, kudos to your honesty. Kudos to your humility to choose not to come because something's not right. But that's not enough. Not coming to the table. (laughs) There's another step. Making it right. So that next time, you don't have to struggle with that before coming to the table. So, with all that in mind, let's pause for prayer and in the quietness. I just encourage you to do what Paul said. Examine yourself. And specifically, let's examine our practice of unity with other believers here or elsewhere in our lives. Let's examine our attitudes. Let's examine our behavior, our words our responses, our reactions, whatever it might be. And let's choose to make it right with God and let's choose to commit to him that we will, sooner than later, address it with those people. Let's examine ourselves. Father, it's a, it's a good and pleasant thing when your people live together in unity. Thank you for the unity that was made possible through the cross of Jesus, through the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you for his willingness to pay our sin penalty. Thank you for the forgiveness that can be ours through that act of love and sacrifice. Thank you for the salvation that can be ours through the death of Christ. And many of us, Lord, have experienced that, and we are so thankful that you have placed us, united us, with all other believers in your family, your kingdom, your body, your church. Thank you for that unity. But Father, some of us have just spent a few moments realizing we have not been practicing that unity. And whatever form that's taken, whatever our role has been, Father, we have not been doing well in the relational part of the unity you've, you've given to us. And Father, we realize that that's important, that this observance that we're experiencing today is all about unity that was brought to us 
through the death of Jesus, through our common salvation. And so, Lord, we want to come to your table remembering the death of Jesus, the salvation, the forgiveness, and the unity as we eat and as we drink. Father, we thank you for the bread. Thank you that as we eat it, as we hold it in our hands, it will help us remember the body of Jesus nailed to the cross. On that body, he bore our sins, was judged in our place for us. We thank you for the contents of the cup. As we come to the table and hold those cups and look at the contents and drink, Lord, we're remembering the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you for forgiveness. Those of us who have repented and received Jesus, we know what that forgiveness is like, and we thank you for it. And may we express that thanks as we come and drink. Father, let this be a holy time. Let this be a time of remembering and giving thanks, but also a time of celebrating the unity that you have given us. And may it be a time of recommitting to the relational unity. Help us to live together in unity because, God, it is good and it is pleasant and it is what you want. In Jesus' name, amen. You come when you choose from upstairs, down, and spend as much time as you need to. Serve yourself and remember and give thanks. Let's come to the Lord's table.